This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. I'm Amanda Machaga, driving the show with Onyele Nzinzi, with Sani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest, Ugandan Parliament thrust in the spotlight following a brawl during a debate focusing on the removal of the presidential age limit. An estimated 500 schools in South Africa's Gauteng province to receive sanitary towels and puberty education over the next five years. In economics, Egypt plans to issue dollar-denominated euro bonds between January and February next year rather than in November and in sport. Springboks under pressure to produce the goods against New Zealand. But first, here's Onelli with your news. Thank you, Amanda. Kenya's Electoral Commission is meeting representatives from the opposition coalition NASA and will later this Tuesday meet President Huru Kenyatta to address sticky issues ahead of fresh elections due, due later this month. The meetings come a day after Western diplomats warned of possible sanctions against those who formatted ethnic hatred and frustrate the Electoral, electoral Commission. The Supreme Court of Kenya nullified the August 8th election following what it termed as illegalities and irregularities. Sarah Kimani has more. It is hoped that the two meetings will break a political deadlock that followed the nullification of August the 8th presidential election results. While the opposition has given a raft of conditionalities that must be met before fresh presidential elections later this month, the ruling party has drafted amendments to the current electoral laws in a bid to counter the opposition. And with a majority in parliament, the laws will sail through the House despite protests by the opposition. The South African National Editors Forum, SANEF, has expressed concern over the condition and situation of journalists in Lesotho. SANEF says the safety of journalists working in the Martin Kingdom is under threat due to the deteriorating security situation. Lesotho Minister of Communications, Science and Technology, Zhuang Molabo, has said that the government has no interest in censoring the media but is going to take action if the country's security is being threatened. Well-known journalist Lesotho's Ntagwaningadane has had to flee the country following numerous threats on her life. Sanef is calling upon the government of Lesotho to ensure the safety of journalists so that they can practice their craft without fear. The most prestigious university in Kenya, the University of Nairobi, has been closed indefinitely following protests. The university says the decision has t- taken before because of security concerns and asked students to leave their halls of residence. Last week, there were clashes between police and students protesting about the arrest of an opposition MP, Babu Owino. U.S. President Donald Trump has described the shooter who killed 59 people and wounded 500 more at Las Vegas Music Festival as a sick and demented person. U.S. investigators are working round the clock to establish what motivated 64-year-old retired accountant Stephen Paddock to carry out the worst shooting in modern American history. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue reports. 
The music festival was reaching its finale when the gunman opened fire, spraying bullets into a crowd. Hundreds of people scrambled for cover, but in the open air, many had nowhere to hide. The automatic gunfire was coming from above the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino. Witnesses say it went on and on, with the gunman apparently pausing to reload multiple times. By the time police stormed the hotel room with explosives, killing the man inside, hundreds of people in the field below were dead, dying or injured. Hospitals in the city were quickly overwhelmed with the wounded, brought in by ambulances and in private cars. An appeal has gone out for people to donate blood. And lastly, the European Parliament has urged EU leaders not to allow Brexit talks to progress to the next stage, which would include discussions of the bloc's future trade relationship with Britain. The BBC's Adam Fleming has the details. The message from MEPs is loud and clear. They don't believe there's been sufficient progress in the Brexit talks to move negotiations onto the future relationship between the EU and the UK. They blamed Britain's stance on citizens' rights, money and the Irish border. It was a view also expressed by the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker and his chief negotiator Michel Barnier. The Parliament's analysis was rejected by a spokesman for the Department for Exiting the EU who said the government's focus was on the round of talks due in Brussels next week. Channel African News, I'm Thank you, Onele. Ugandan members of parliament were caught up in a brawl last week, exchanging punches, kicks and throwing objects at each other during a debate focusing on the removal of the presidential age limit. Last week, Wednesday, more than 20 MPs and lawmakers were thrown out of the parliament's chambers for opposing the proposed constitutional change, which would see the long-running Ugandan president Yoweri Museveni stay in power after the age of 75. What does this mean for the future of this East African nation? To help us answer that question, we have Paul Mulindwa, the Senior Project Officer at the Center for Conflict Resolution in South Africa, and Jamie Hitchin, a policy researcher at the Africa Research Institute in London. In one of my projects, I was interviewing some locals in Uganda uh, for a project to be implemented recently. And I asked some people what they see uh, as the future you know, perspective. And they said the future is in the hands of God. So as far as uh, Uganda is concerned now, I think we need to put the future in the hands of God. Yeah, but uh, that's not uh, being you know, like desperate or to, have, to lose hope. Yeah, we have to give the credit where it's due. With all credits, with all the good things the president has done, as you are talking about the contradictions, we see all the development. Since 1986 to date, there is a lot of development, a lot of infrastructure, but now there is a little bit of degeneration. If we go back to security, I don't think in Uganda now people are still secure. Unless we say uh, peace, absence of guns. But mm. in my peace building work, peace is not absence of the war and guns, but absence of poverty, absence of um, uh, unemployment, absence of inequality, and human rights violation. If you go to Uganda now, you can, especially in entering the state house where it's located, people are dying right and left, women are killed mm. uh, right and left, 
Um, the other day we were counting close to uh, 20 something uh, women who died by the by June this year. Uh, we are counting around the uh, um, Islamic and the other um, important uh, leaders in Uganda, uh, close to 15 uh, who had been murdered in cold blood, and nothing like a report comes out or apprehension mm-hmm. of someone. Um, just recently, this year we saw. A whole IGP, Assistant Inspector General of Police, dying. So economic-wise, um, I think Uganda just last week was graded uh, as the first last in the region, being poor. So if you go to the villages, people are poor. People are poor. You can mm. even see poverty in the eyes of people. So uh, we cannot uh, remain uh, like you praise him, we praise him. Mm. I think a lot needs to be done. His uh, policies, his uh, activities that he had started with, we have to reimagine, to rephrase in order to have a new Uganda. Whether this means uh, for him to go off the, uh, the chair and another leader comes, or for him to remain the party paint, but to restart, to reignite the, uh, the vapor they came with Uganda, it now. Uh, not tomorrow. Let me bring it to you, Jamie. How do you see things uh, unfolding? Yeah, I think that it's no surprise that he's seeking to, to stay in power. I think this has always been suggested and, and well kind of recognized in Uganda, but that the question of how he's going to go about it was quite interesting. And I mean, I think it's quite interesting in itself that we spoke a, a lot about Museveni the man, um, but Uganda, of course, is a parliamentary democracy in theory. So it's an interesting to show just kind of to show how much everything is centered around what Museveni thinks and does uh, and shows the kind of problematic way in which the, the state has been built around the individual rather than a kind of more discursive environment. I think, you know, that it is important to stress that Uganda has made some significant strides since 1986 and uh, the research institute I work for did a, a report last year looking at the 30 years of uh, NRM government uh, setting parameters against their own 10-point plan, which was their kind of manifesto they brought with them in 1986. And there has been some success in areas around, um, you know, particularly in the early 90s around healthcare and and improving infrastructure and the economy did grow very well, although that is fading a little bit. But there are some really sizable challenges facing the country moving forward. I mean, the youth demographic in the country, it's one of the youngest countries uh, in Africa, uh, you've got very high levels of youth unemployment. There is still a lack of uh, economic diversification that's got not that's moved away from subsistence agriculture. I think Oxfam did a report last year that kind of highlighted how inequality is really growing in the country, particularly in different regions. So the northern region and eastern region are lagging behind western and central regions. Uh, corruption is still a, a, a problem a big problem in the country. Uh, security as kind of back on the agenda. Uh, violence in Kasese last week. Um, the dominance of state security forces and, and the use of state security mm. forces, including the police, is, is particularly particularly worrying. Um, and linking to what you were talking about, the Uganda Communications Commission, um, that is also to see the way that they're trying to clamp down on, on freedom of press. I mean, I think that what's interesting about what the UCC uh, verdict was was that perhaps Parliament... The, the fighting in Parliament, we all saw the footage of, was not uh, an issue that, that perhaps warranted that kind mm-hmm. of uh, clamping down on. But if you look at it in the long term, what I think the Uganda Communications Commission is thinking about is that if there are street protests 
in a similar vein against mm, the age limit, mm. that they already have mechanisms in place to stop those being covered by the media. That's Jamie Hitchin, a policy researcher at the Africa Research Institute in London, and you also heard from Paul Mulindwa, the senior project officer at the Centre for Conflict Resolution in South Africa. They were speaking to Benjamin Mushadama. Turkey has inaugurated the largest foreign-run military training center in Somalia, where local troops are due to take over the protection of a horn of African nation threatened by a Shabab Islamist attacks. Somalia's fragile government and institutions, including its national army, are backed by the African Union's force, known as AMISOM, and troops from the United States. But the gradual withdrawal of the AMISOM troops is due to start in October next year, and doubts persist over the readiness of Somali forces to confront the al-Qaeda-aligned Shabab. Channel Africa spoke to Abdi Hakim Ainte, independent analyst in Somalia, about the new military academy and what its launch means for the fight against Al-Shabaab. This is uh, Turkey's biggest military uh, operation in overseas. This comes right after they have also uh, launched their biggest uh, diplomatic mission in Somalia. That makes Turkey uh, uh, having two of its biggest overseas operation in Somalia. What does that tell you is that Turkey has a clear and vested interest in Somalia over the long term. So this military uh, academy or the military academy that has been inaugurated indicates the level of Turkey in the country, but also it comes at a great time when Somali is rebuilding its national army. So a lot of people here think that this military, this uh, uh, office and base will help build Somalia's uh, crumbling military institution. Now, this academy is quite different because the Turkish troops will train the forces and equip them with their military hardware so that they will not be left alone after the training. About 1,500 Somali soldiers can be trained there at a time, making the largest foreign-run military training center in the country. This is quite significant, Abdi Akim. Very significant. And Turkey, uh, to be an effective and relevant player in Somalia, they need to build and uh, strengthen Somali national military army and Somali national military, uh, Somali police. And that's the only way that Turkey uh, can re-stabilize and, and make Somalia uh, stand on its feet if they would want Somalia to be an equal partner that they can rely on. I mean, the thing is that here is that Turkey, though they have uh, put a lot of money and resource in building the infrastructure and creating a lot of uh, employment opportunity, things like this, the port and the, the seaport, they have been, uh, they realize that they need to support and build Somali national army for Somalia to become uh, uh, a stable country that can be invested and Turkey can rely on its operation in Somalia. So this is uh, a very significant for both Somalia and for Turkey, and it will also bring the two countries more closer than ever. And this is part of a broader strategy of Turkey's involvement in Africa, so that they can have a, a military base that they can effectively rely on and that they can train and support the Somali national army. Do you think this will have a positive impact in the fight against Al-Shabaab militants? It will definitely, definitely 
have a significant uh, impact on the fight against al-Shabaab because the Somali army, they have been under-equipped and under-resourced uh, and they were not being able to confront with the firepower and the, and the military capability of al-Shabaab, especially in the, in the modern warfare of guerrilla warfare. So this would definitely help Somali army and Somali military to build it is a military apparatus so that they can confront and fight. But also, if you look at it, the broader picture, this is uh, also a big win for the for the African uh, continent, but especially in the in the whole of Africa, where the terror of the, the war on terror and the and the and Shalab has been destabilizing in this region, in uh, especially in, in in the whole of Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, and that part of the belt. So this will definitely give the Somali army to confront and also uh, decapitate the, the, the capacity of al-Shabaab. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French, and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunye Nzovu, and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. 17 minutes after 5 p.m. Central African time, you're listening to Africa Digest. As investigators tried to find out why Stephen Pedro carried out a mass shooting in Las Vegas on Sunday night, killing 59 people and injured injuring more than 500 others. The U.S. city is struggling to come to terms with what happened. The BBC's Laura Baker reports from Las Vegas. It's morning in Goza, and the camp is shrouded in a smoky mist and that's because everybody is getting breakfast ready. It seems to be a cooking corner in the camp where lots of women are using the oil and millet and corn that they were given in the food distribution yesterday. Just behind those women are the tall mountains that run all along one side of Goza town and they're protecting it because just over the other side we're told are Boko Haram. One day, I was at home with my family when they came and chased us out of the house. They caught my older brothers and said they were going to kill them. So we all started crying. Asta lives here in the camp. Her mom tells me she's eight, but she speaks with... As the first spray of bullets cracked through the country music melody, some in the crowd fell to the ground. Others ran. They hoped for it all to end. Why is there blood? But the carnage just didn't seem to stop.
24 hours on and the first vigil services are being held to try to make sense of what took place in a city usually full of frivolous fun. The names of the victims are also being remembered on social media posts spread around the world. Carrie Barnett was in Vegas for a friend's birthday. She died before reaching the hospital. Denise Berditis is seen on Facebook hugging her husband just hours before the concert. She later died in his arms. The mayor of Las Vegas is Caroline Goodman. While the sun is shining in Las Vegas, it is a very dark and black day. And as I'm sure that was said, October 1st, 2000. And 17 will be one of the darkest days ever, and hopefully never again. 80 miles away in a quiet retirement village carved meticulously out of the desert, police have raided the home of the gunman, Stephen Paddock. The garage door has been ripped open and it's tossed aside. Inside, they discovered more guns, ammunition, explosives, all to add to the rifles and assault weapons they found in the Las Vegas hotel room he'd used as his base. Few in the neighbourhood knew the 64-year-old retired accountant and high-stakes gambler. Odd was one description. A whale odd was another. His brother Eric spoke to reporters as the FBI arrived to talk to the family. I mean, my brother did this. I, this is like it was done, you know, like he shot us. I mean, if he'd have killed my kids, I couldn't be more dumbfounded. I mean... Uh, it doesn't. So last. There's com- nothing. Last there's, communication. There's nothing. After the hurricane. I mean, I can show you the text. He said, yeah. you know, how's mom? <laughs> Did you get power? You know, I mean, <laughs> that was it. There's absolutely we have nothing. Like I said, we have nothing for it. Back in Las Vegas, the congregation holds hands across the aisle. Catholics, Jews, Muslims all hold their arms up together. Many had band-aids on them. They donated blood to the shooting victims or gathered clothes, food and donations. Uh, We've been helping people all day in any way that we can and it's just a moment to to really be with our thoughts and reflect on the lives that were lost um, before getting back to work because we have a a lot of work left to do. Others were wiping away tears as I spoke to them. We don't know why and and I don't know that we'll ever know why, and that's going to be a hard part of that, of this whole thing for all of us, is not ever knowing why did he have to do this. Las Vegas can often feel like a simple glitzy tourist town. Today, more than ever, they want to show off a different side, a defiant, dignified community who will face this horror together. That report by the BBC's Laura Abika. An estimated 500 schools in South Africa's Gauteng province will receive sanitary towels and puberty education over the next five years through the Always Keeping Girls in School program by Consumer Goods Corporation Procter & Gamble. About 150,000 girls in South Africa and Kenya have benefited from this initiative in the past 10 years. To further enable this program, the Department of Social Development in Gauteng has announced its commitment to collaborating with the company. Jean Duplessis, Communications Manager at Procter & Gamble, explains. 
So the Always Keeping Girls in School initiative has been running now for just over 10 years in South Africa and in Kenya. And really it's an initiative that ties in with PNG's commitment to gender equality and it also ties in with the purpose of the Always brand, which is to enable women and girls to be whoever and whatever they want to be. What the Always Keeping Girls in School program does is that we provide Firstly, puberty education to, to girls in need so that they understand the changes that are going on in their bodies and so that they can be confident and they don't have to feel afraid or ashamed uh, when they start menstruating or when their bodies change uh, when they reach puberty. We also then donate always sanitary pads to these girls so that they can be protected and they can feel confident and they can come to school and commit to their education every day of the month. What did you find, because we know that you work both in South Africa and Kenya, what did you find that were perhaps the common challenges between young girls in Kenya and and young girls in South Africa in as far as the provision uh, or the lack thereof of sanitary towels is concerned? Sure. I think, you know, it's, uh, it's the case all across Africa is that we are still, as much as Africa is growing and there's so much promise and there's so much potential, all across Africa, we are still dealing with issues of poverty, which sometimes makes it difficult for, for girls to be able to afford something as simple as, as sanitary towels. What then happens is that girls resort to often unhygienic or uh, methods to protect themselves or sometimes just methods that fail them and that cause them embarrassment. And that's why we really saw the need to, to provide always sanitary pads to girls and in these positions. The other common challenge that we see across South Africa and then also in Kenya and, and even further is that there's often a lot of misinformation or stigmatization around menstruation and around puberty. And in a lot of cases, the girls don't feel like they have someone that they can turn to for information. Uh, they end up feeling ashamed. Uh, sometimes they're really scared because they don't understand what's happening in their bodies. And that's why it's so important that when we bring girls the sanitary towels um, so that they can be protected, that we also bring them information and education. Is there any specific reason why uh, you would have chosen Kenya of all the other African countries uh, to be the beneficiary of this initiative? In Sub-Saharan Africa, PNG uh, has offices in South Africa and Kenya and in Nigeria. So we are, as a company, we commit to really investing in and working in the communities in which we live and work and operate. And so these are the communities that we are closest to. In Nigeria, we have other partnerships to empower girls. Uh, For instance, we work very closely with UNESCO in Nigeria, and we're looking at expanding the Always Keeping Girls in School program uh, in that country as well. Uh, But really, you know, we believe charity starts at home. This is where our employees are from, this is where we work every day, and that's why these are the communities that we invest in first. And now, great news, of course, the Department of Social Development in Gauteng has now uh, committed to um, taking this journey with you of this campaign. Um, To which extent will this collaboration really go, Uh, and practically what is it that they're going to be bringing to the table uh, to move forward with this um, initiative? So, so I am so excited, and I think as PNG, I speak for everyone, when we say we're so excited about this collaboration with mm. the Gauteng Department of Social Development. 
we are going to extend the, the benefits of the Always Keeping Girls in School program to almost 500 schools in the province of Kharteng. Um, that's a huge leap from where we are today. The department is bringing resources, they're bringing the ability to monitor and evaluate the social outcomes of the program, and they are also really in a position to mobilize more resources so that we can all work together to ensure that girls have the same chances as boys when it comes to completing their education. There's Jean Duplessis, Communications Manager at Procter & Gamble, talking to Khomutzomopolani. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's approaching 17.30 Central African time on Ellen's Insta standing by with the news headlines. Kenya's opposition leader, Harela Odinga, and Deputy President William Ruto held long separate discussions with top officials of the country's electoral commission. The South African National Editors Forum, SANEF, expresses concern as well-known journalist Lesotho Zintakwane Ngadane has had to flee the country following numerous threats on her life. And the European Parliament has urged EU leaders not to allow Brexit talks to progress to the next stage. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Nele. What's it like to spend most of the life you can remember without a home? Boko Haram is still terrorizing northeast Nigeria, and that means millions of people can't go back to their families, farms, towns, or villages. Many of them are children and have spent three years or more living in camps for displaced people in small pockets that are secured from the militants. The BBC's Stephanie Higati spent some time with them. morning in Goza and the camp is shrouded in a smoky mist and that's because everybody is getting breakfast ready. There seems to be a cooking corner in the camp where lots of women are using the oil and millet and corn that they were given in the food distribution yesterday. Just behind those women are the tall mountains that run all along one side of Goza town and they're protecting it because just over the other side we're told are Boko Haram. One day, I was at home with my family when they came and chased us out of the house. They caught my older brothers and said they were going to kill them. 
So we all started crying. Asta lives here in the camp. Her mom tells me she's eight. But she speaks with the composure of someone much older. We had a comfortable life. Every time a member of the family traveled, the house became so boring and we missed the person so much. But when they returned, it was fun again. Now we have been separated. Someone has been killed. Boko Haram killed six members of my family. They ran, taking very little with them. Now in this camp, they rely on aid for everything. Asta offers to show us around. As we're walking, a group of boys rattle past, pulling along little cars on strings. One of them is a miniature army vehicle with a tiny surface-to-air missile made from rusty tin. We asked to meet the boy who made them. We've stumbled across a group of very small engineers. These are the kids who are making these little metal toy cars, making them from corrugated iron and nails and bottle tops for wheels. Ibrahim is 13, according to his mum, though he looks younger. His favourite thing, he says, is to make these cars. In my village, there was trees beside the houses. There are rivers, and our sound is different from this one. They burnt our houses. He says it's safe here, and they have enough to eat. But it's just rice and corn every day. On the farm, they had so many fresh fruits and vegetables. Juicy mangoes, bananas, oranges, tomatoes. Conditions in this camp are better than in many of the outlying areas. Eight-year-old James spent much of his young life running. Boko Haram attacked their village and burnt their house, he says. He and his family fled across the border to Cameroon. He said he saw lots of dead bodies on the road. There was no food, no water, and no shelter, so they had to leave. James is in a huge pair of tracksuit bottoms rolled up over one knee. He's borrowed them from his dad. He says here there's food and there's water, but there aren't any clothes. Everything they had, Boko Haram burnt it. That's the price of this war, a generation that might never know home again. In that report by the BBC's Stephanie Hegarty. Stitching Sports, a Netherlands-based organization, has joined hands with its counterparts to launch a worldwide petition addressed to the South African Department of Environmental Affairs to stop the exploitation of captive bread lines and the export of lion bones. Simone Eckhart, director for Stitching Sports, says... 
says the Southern African nation have an important role to play for the conservation of the lion species than to work towards its extinction. Eckhart says lions are in serious decline across most of the African continent and according to the recent International Union for the Conservation of Nature Red List Assessment, as few as 20,000 lions remain. The increasing trade in lion bones and other body parts is recognized as a major threat to existing populations along habitat and prey laws, human and wildlife conflict and poorly regulated uh, trophy hunting. Well, the lion populations are dwindling. I mean, experts say that there are now less than 20,000 lions and South Africa has an important role to play. But, I mean, South Africa always say they have a wealthy population of lions, but they don't have like actual counts. So it's really not sure how many lions there are in South Africa. And they also include like the managed lions and that are the lions in private parks. You can wonder if those lions are really like wild wild. I mean, those are different lions than, for example, in Kruger. Anyway, the population of lions is going down. And one of the reasons is also illegal trade. Because in Asia, a lot of people want to have lion bones because they think they are healing, and they used to use tiger bones, but because of the demand, the tiger already got extinct nearly. So the trade is limited, restricted, and now they need, well, replacements, and they find that in lion bones. So what the South African government is now doing with decision to yearly export 800 skeletons of red lions to Asia to fulfill this demand, that's really fueling up the illegal trade in wild lions, and the wild lions cannot use that. So that's a big problem, and we think, although South African government is saying that they do this to help the wild lions, it's ridiculous, because we get a lot of reports of poached wild lions also in South Africa because of this trade. So if South Africa wants to do a trade like this, they should have scientific proof that it's not hurting wild lions and they don't have the proof. There is no research, there's nothing, there's only the word of the South African government that it's not harming wild lions. So we want with this petition to really express our worries because we cannot imagine that South Africa wants to be part of the extinction of wild lions and that's the role it's playing at this point, which is a shame because you have an important role to play worldwide when it comes to lions. Now, the role that you say South Africa has to play with regards to the lion species, what makes it not to do what is supposed to be done in order to conserve this species for future generations? Well, you know, there's a lot of things needed and I think what South Africa has shown that they are one of the countries in Africa which has like a stable lion population, although I have to say there are not really like recent research about the numbers living in South Africa. But I mean, yes, we all agree that South Africa has an important uh, population of lions. But on the other hand, they also have like this whole captive industry of bread lions, and that's spreading a whole wrong message. I mean, and that was already the case with the cup petting of the bread lions and the canned hunting. But now with it, with this illegal, with this trade in lion bones, you have a lot of African countries which have not a really healthy population of lions. And there you see that people are going into illegal poaching. So 
I mean, that's the role South Africa is playing by going into the demand of the lion bones. So that's the role they shouldn't play. And now looking at these activities from carb petting to trophy hunting, does it serve uh, any conservation purposes? No, not at all. And I mean, a lot of nature organizations already said that. And some resolutions have been taken and brought to the attention of the government of South Africa, saying that the whole captive industry has no conservation value at all. I mean, nothing. But your government is just saying, you know, we make money of it, so we don't care, basically. So the thing is, it's hurting South Africa in a huge scale. I mean, you can say to nature conservationists like us, like, you know, you talk rubbish or whatever. But the thing is, a lot of people, tourists, volunteers who visit your country, they come there with all kinds of fake stories like, oh, come and pet this little lion cup and we will place it back into the wild. And now more and more people get aware that this cute little lion cup ends up in the hunting, in a horrible way of hunting. And this is all damaging the brand of South Africa. And tourism is very important for you. And I mean, I've been to your country many times. I love your country. It's a beautiful country. But all these breeding with lions and making fake stories and say that it's nature conservation, you know, more and more people are aware of this. And you have the risk that people will avoid traveling to South Africa and and choose other countries who don't have this whole breeding industry of lions like Namibia or Botswana. So this is something which is not only of interest of the government of South Africa, but also to all the people living there. Is this the image you want to spread in the world? And now what is being expected from this worldwide petition that was launched addressed to the South African Department of Environmental Affairs? Well, the thing is, your department of environmental affairs doesn't really listen or doesn't want to listen to nature conservationists. I mean, when we ask for research, they will say it will come. Or when people say it has no nature conservation, they just say, well, you know, we don't care what you say. So the only thing we can do and what we try to do with the petition is show your government, your department specifically, that the people worldwide, not only like nature conservationists, are worried. And this is not helping your image of the branding you do in tourism, like South Africa inspiring new ways. I mean, if this is new ways, breeding and exploiting uh, lions and bringing the wild lions uh, to the brink of extinction, I think lots of people don't like that. So we hope with this petition that the government understands that, I mean, this is not helping, and lots of people don't like it. Yeah, so that's what what we hope to do with it, express our worries. And uh, how has this petition been received by the authorities in South Africa? We are going to send it tomorrow because tomorrow it's World Animal Day, 4th of October. We will send it to the Department of Environmental Affairs. We will send it to other governments. We will send it to embassies. And I just really hope they will hear, let us hear something. I mean, normally they just don't do anything with it. And they just say, like, you know, they are talking like bulls, to say it roughly. <laughs> so we hope that they just understand the worries and that they will respond. That's the hope. But I don't think, I, I don't know if they do it. How many of the organizations have uh, appended their signatures to this worldwide petition? More than 25. And at this point, nearly 12,000 people signed it. And we will carry it on. 
and our aim is to get at least 100,000 signatures and then again present it to your Department of Environmental Affairs to show them it's not only nature conservationists, it's something that worries people worldwide and it's a stain on the beautiful country of South Africa. That was Simone Eckhart, Director for Stichting Sports, on the line from the Netherlands, talking to Wendele Kalipa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa, and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Time now for our economics news with Wissani Matebula. Good evening. Thanks, Amanda. Global investors are snubbing Africa's biggest stock market and outflows from the Johannesburg Stock Exchange have reached 7 billion US dollars this year. Analysts say foreigners have to factor in a weakening rent on top of slow growth and political risks. The fiscal deficit is set to widen as revenue falls short of projections, while the ANC is heading for a bruising leadership battle in December amid allegations of corruption. South Africa relies on portfolio flows uh, to finance its current account deficit, which widened to 2.4% of the GDP in the second quarter. A widening shortfall will add pressure on the South African rent, which has already weakened 5% in this quarter. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe calling for greater trade and investment cooperation between Zimbabwe and South Africa. He's on a visit to South Africa where he's co-chairing the Binational Commission with his host Jacob Zuma in Pretoria. There are over 120 South African companies doing business in Zimbabwe. Mugabe has urged both the public and private sectors to help fast-track increased investment flows between the two neighboring countries. More still needs to be done to reinforce the foundations of our strategic partnership. This strategic partnership is the instrument for achieving the profound transformation of our country's economies. But let us join hands and promote cross-border investments, facilitate joint ventures, and other linkages between the public and private entities of our countries. And South African President Jacob Zuma has called for the acceleration of the upgrading of the Bay Bridge one-stop border post between South Africa and Zimbabwe. Inadequate infrastructure and the border post is hindering efforts to facilitate cross-border trade between the two neighboring countries. Zuma has emphasized 
the significance of the border post. This border post is the busiest border post on the continent. Much of our goods and services go through it. We cannot afford to continue to have unnecessary delays at that border. It is therefore important and urgent that we start in earnest the process of establishing a one-stop border post. In this regard, we direct the relevant ministers and officials to move with speed and report progress at the next binational commission. South Africa plans to cut spending and borrow more to fund expenditure will be threatened by lower-than-previously focused economic growth. The finance ministry faces a large revenue gap due to two quarters of contraction. In a presentation to Parliament, Treasury said the likelihood of missing its forecast of 1.3% growth this year will threaten the affordability of planned expenditure. In Egypt, the country is planning to issue dollar-denominated eurobonds between January and February next year, followed by a euro-denominated issuance later. The dollar-denominated eurobonds will be worth four billion U.S. dollars. Sitia Zuma has more. Egypt has been negotiating billions of dollars in aid from multilateral lenders including a three-year 12 billion US dollar loan program from the International Monetary Fund to help revive an economy hit by upheaval since the 2011 revolt. Earlier this year, the government sold $7 billion in five 10 and 30-year bonds, part of its return to international markets after turmoil following the ouster of President Hosni Mubarak in 2011. Due to recent interest rate hikes, government interest payments on debt will also increase. The minister says tax revenues grew to $26.3 billion in the fiscal year. Egypt agreed the $12 billion IMF loan program in November. I'm Sikhe Zuma reporting for Channel Africa in Johannesburg. Financial indicators, the US dollar trading at 13.59 South African rents, 10.23 Botswana Pula and 9.66 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.85 against the euro. Commodities, gold at $1,270, platinum $909 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $55.85 per barrel. That's your economics news. Time now for our sports news with Musibuji Makura. Good evening, sports fans. I am Usibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with rugby news after three matches without a win, including a, five, a 57-0 loss against the All Blacks of New Zealand in Albany a few weeks ago. The Springboks arrived in Cape Town, a team under severe pressure. Not many rugby supporters give the box a chance against the Kiwis at Newlands on Saturday. Nabo coach Alistair Kotsia says he never prepares a team to lose a test match and that they've learned their lessons and are looking forward to the challenge over this weekend. We never prepare to lose a test match. doesn't matter who it is against. We never prepare to lose. But it can happen, you know, when the one team is firing like the All Blacks did on the day. We, you just have to clap hands. What can you do? You're trying your best 
no lack of effort. Maybe mistakes that you're forced in, but and, and it doesn't go your way. What can you do? So the only thing that you can take from that is uh, being able to know how to fix it. And we've had a thorough look at that. And we're looking forward to the next one. South African world champions Wade Fanikag, Luvo Manyonga, as well as Kasta Semenya have all been nominated for the IAAF World Athlete of the Year Award. Fanikag, who retained his 400-meter title in London, and long jump champion Manyonga, whose 8.65-meter national record was also the best jump this decade so far among the 10 candidates for the men's award. Kasta Semenya, the 800-meter champion, as well as the 1,500-meter bronze medalist as the only South African for the Women's Prize. Now fans can vote on the IAAF's social media platforms with a poll counting about 25%. The IAAF council vote will count 50% while the IAAF family vote will count 25%. Voting closes on the 16th of October and the winners will be announced at the awards ceremony in Monaco on the 24th of November. On to cricket news, WSB Cape Cobra's fast bowler Dane Patterson has been added to the Standard Bank Proteus Test Squad for the second Sunfoil Test against Bangladesh starting at the Mangaung Oval in Bloemfontein in the Free State Province on Friday. Patterson replaces Mone Moko who sustained a grade 2 tear to his left abdominal oblique muscle during the 333-run victory at Senwes Park in Porchestrum in the Northwest Province on Monday. Proteus team manager Dr. Mohamed Mohamed Mosaji is explained, or rather, in explaining the injury, says Mone complained of a sharp pain to his left side. Subsequent scans have confirmed a grade two tear to the left abdominal oblique muscle, which rules him out of the remainder of the series. Mosaji says uh, he will need a four to six week recovery period and will target a return for the T20 Global League in November. And finally, in tennis news, Rafael Nadal came within a whisker of making an opening round exit at the China Open on as um, he was pushed to three sets by Frenchman Lucas Pole before winning 4-6, 7-6, The board number one who was beaten by Pole the last time they met at the 2016 US Open lost a close first set before saving two match points in the second tie break to level things up. Nadal needed all his experience to keep Pole at bay in the decider and the match looked to be heading for another tie break before he pounced to break Pole's serve for the first time to go 6-5 up in the third set. Now the Spaniard held his nerve to close out the match in clinical fashion after 2 hours and 31 minutes. The Zaya Sports News at the South stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It's approaching five minutes before 6 p.m. Central African time. Let's do a quick recap of our top stories right here on Africa Digest. Ugandan parliament thrust in the spotlight following a brawl during a debate focusing on the removal of the presidential age limit and an estimated 500 schools in South Africa's Gauteng province to receive sanitary towels and puberty education over the next five years. That wraps up Africa Digest this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Leander Maume, 
Technical producer Dumilo Mukwen and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. You can send us your comments on the show to info at channelafrica.co.za or send a message to plus two seven seven six three double zero three three two seven. We are also on Twitter. Our handle is at Channel Africa One. And taking us to the top of the hour is Nzima Abais and Pure Dana. Sendena busani betusi, 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 sendena busani betusi,